Our reading this morning is from Genesis 8, verse 18, to Genesis 9, verse 29. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal, and some of every bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it, and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. 
He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived for 350 years. All of the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Well, thank you, Morag, for reading for us. As uh, Will said earlier on in the service, we're in Genesis. Um, We're going to be in Genesis up until the summer holidays, and then we'll take a break over the summer holidays, and we'll return uh, in September. And uh, Genesis will be our series, both for our home groups and for our Sunday morning uh, services, at least for the first part uh, of the year. Now, um, we'll get to Genesis in a moment, but as uh, we usually do, we're going to pray. It's important that we pray as as we look Um, at God's word together, that we consider that our understanding may not be quite right, that we need to hear what God says to us. So let's ask for his Spirit's help. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God, breathed out by his Spirit, and profitable, useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Father, as we come to your spirit-breathed-out word to us this morning, we ask that you would teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness so that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis, we're coming in at chapter 8, end of chapter 8 as you'll have seen. The early chapters of Genesis, they've taken us from God's good creation of the universe and the world and the making of men and women in his image through humanity's devastating rebellion and their fall and into the world in which we are now left. That's what our sermon series in the evenings have been showing us. Please do look at those if you'd like to catch up. We've seen that it's a world still of great beauty and great human progress, but also a world full of great wickedness. Just last week we saw in chapter 6, chapter 6 verse 5 to 7, you can just flick back a page and and see that. This was the verdict, this is God's verdict, Genesis 6 verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. You see the verdict, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And so God said enough, and judgment came in the form of an all-consuming flood. It's a terribly dark scene, but then through the gloom comes one shaft of light, chapter 6, verse 8, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. God was... Favorable. He was gracious to Noah. Noah, the one man on earth who trusted God, a man of faith. And he was gracious to Noah's family, to his wife, his three sons and their wives. 
And also to animal kind. He preserves two of every kind of animal and seven pairs of every kind of clean animal. God in his grace saved them through the building of an ark, a great boat, so that their lives were preserved and so that creation could continue. Now as we come to the end of Genesis 8, the flood has finally dried up and it's re-entry day. That's the scene as we land this morning in Genesis 8 verse 18. They step out again into the post-judgment, post-flood world. Now just imagine, just imagine for a moment what that would have been like for Noah. You and your family, you've spent about a year, a year together in a large wooden boat. I don't know about you, but me and my family, we struggled to be in the same house for a few days over Christmas. But a year in a boat, that sounds awful. Very little light, the constant movement, the seasickness, the up and down on the waters, and the smell. Can you imagine all those animals in there with you? Must have been horrendous. But then finally, after all that time, the ark comes to rest on the mountainside, the waters recede, and then on one long-awaited day, the door opens, and you step out onto firm ground and take deep breaths from the fresh mountain air. Can you imagine? And yet what must they have seen? An earth devastated, mud and muck and the debris of destruction everywhere. And what must they have been thinking? They know that they are the only ones left and that before them is the huge challenge of repopulating and rebuilding the world. What are they thinking? Well, we're given insight into Noah's thoughts, I think, in chapter 8 by what he does first in chapter 8, verse 20. Noah's a man of faith. We've been told that. He's thankful to God for his survival and he knows that if it's to work this time, well, the same mistakes can't be made again. Humanity must first turn to God in worship. And he seems to know that he has escaped not because of his righteous deeds, but only because of God's mercy. And we know that, we know he's thinking these things because as his faithful ancestor Abel had once done, he offers to God a sacrifice. This is chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I ever, never, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Now notice God's first response to this sacrifice. God is pleased by it. So here we've got the first indication in the Bible, that it is necessary to appease God's wrath by sacrifice. God is pleased by the smell of the roasting meat. And he says in his heart that he will now withhold his judgment. He will not curse the ground again, nor will he strike down every living creature again, as he had done in the flood. 
This sacrifice turns aside God's wrath, or to put it another way, atones for it. Now notice too that this turning aside of God's wrath, it's not because humanity has turned over a new leaf. It's not because Noah and his family are reformed now and and now sinless in their nature. In fact, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? It's in the face of their sinful nature that God withholds his judgment from them. We saw earlier in chapter 6 God's assessment of the human heart before the flood And it seems nothing has changed. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Humanity's old problem remains the sinful human heart. The centre of his being is corrupted, it's depraved. Even Noah, even the best of humanity is described in this way, as are all of us. Now you may think that is a bit harsh, but the Lord Jesus said exactly the same thing. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, you can, you can look it up. He said that the thoughts of people's hearts are evil, that we have evil hearts. God's decision to withhold his judgment, it can't be because of some newfound moral righteousness in humanity. It has to be purely and solely because of his sheer grace and mercy. Post-flood, we live in an era of divine forbearance, of divine patience. And also divine grace, what we call God's common grace. His common grace is that which extends not only to his people, but also to humanity. It's described in verse 22. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. The Lord promises never to allow such a disruption to the cycles of the planet ever again. As long as the natural, as long as the earth endures, the natural rhythms of life will continue. He's, his intention is that the creation is preserved, that it, that it continues, it can be rebuilt. His common grace stabilizes the created order so that this might happen. So this then is what Noah's sacrifice seems to bring about and which characterizes the world that we live in. Divine patience... And divine grace to an undeserving world to preserve it now through millennia and to enable it to flourish despite the ongoing sin of human beings. Now, what comes next in chapter 9, verse 1 to 7? It shows us more of what this world, this new world, will be like. And once again, we find a mixture. One commentator I read described Noah in these verses as an almost new Adam. That's quite a helpful way to put it, an almost new Adam. It's a new beginning, it's a a new humanity, but it's only almost new. Because again, we notice that the old problem of human sin has not been removed. Let me just show you that. Uh, uh, Chapter 9, verse 1 and verse 7 
We get the original creation blessing and the mandate given to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, verse 1. And then verse 7. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. They're to have babies to spread through the earth that they might bring it under control and make it productive, just as Adam was told to do. God's still blessing them in this way. Then verse 2 Verse 2 shows us that there's still the disruption caused by the fall. See, the creatures will fear humanity. And we see this in our world, don't we? You try and get near a rabbit or a raven or a rat, and what happens? Well, they run off. They're afraid of us. And with good reason, because we might eat them, verse 3. Now we're told here that this is the provision of God for humanity. It's a gracious provision for us. And we're also told that it's protected. It has limits. Humans are not to eat meat with the blood still in it. That is, I think, not, at least it's not to chop bits off animals while they're still alive. But also, when you look at the later food laws that are given in Exodus and Leviticus... We're not to eat before the blood has been drained from the animals. The blood seems to represent the life of the creature. And so humans are to respect the life of all living things by preparing the meat properly. Probably what's going on is that the the process, the proper process, helps them to remember that all life belongs to God and is in his gift. But of more importance in uh, verse 5 is the blood, the the lifeblood of humanity itself. See that in verse 5? God will require a reckoning, first of all from any animals that uh, will kill human beings, that they'll face a reckoning from God. But more so will human beings themselves. Let me read verse 5 and 6. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by, his, by man his, shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. We get here what we might call a proto-law. It's the simplest and most basic of the laws of God. And what does it reveal? Well, it reveals a few things. First of all, it reveals that the sanctity of human life. Because they're made in his image, human life is to be held in high honour and protected legally. Therefore, murderously taking that life anywhere from the womb to the hospice and anywhere in between, is a grievous sin. And humans must be called to a reckoning for it by their fellow human beings. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. That's the first thing it reveals. It reveals the sanctity of human life. The second thing it reveals is this, that God determines what's right and what's wrong. And he determines what justice looks like. And when we read this law, um, at first blush we might think, well that sounds a bit harsh. 
But the purpose is to protect life by establishing a serious consequence of taking it. It's a protective law. And it's also to restrain evil. This law enacts justice, not vengeance. It's like for like. And we need to remember what human beings are like in Genesis so far. Men like Lamech in chapter 4. He threatened 77 times the violence done to him. Like the mafia, you know, you kill one of ours, we take out your whole family. That's what we're like. We have a tendency to escalate in vengeance. But this law, this new law, it establishes a pattern for a legal framework that is proportionate, that holds back the human tendency to go over the top in response Now that's the details. Let's just zoom back out. What's the big point of verses, chapter 9, verse 1 to 7? The big point of all this is that this new beginning, this post-flood world that we now live in, is a mixture. Our experience is that of divine patience and divine grace. God blesses the world and humanity gives them children and food, sustains the earth for us to enjoy. But at the same time, there's this ongoing presence of sin. There's fear and blood and death. It's a new beginning, but the old problem remains. The judgment of the flood didn't change the human heart. We need to continue to see that God is gracious to us. That Noah's sacrifice has bought us time. But we need to ask, will God put up with humanity forever? There are some hints here that that's not the case. That something more radical will need to be done. That perhaps some greater sacrifice is needed to deal with our biggest problem. That's the first section. Let's turn now to the second section, chapter 9, verse 8 to 17. Now just look down um, at the chapter there and have a quick scan through the verses. It's not that hard to work out what this section uh, is about. One word dominates the section, doesn't it? It's the word covenant. It's there in verse 9, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, verse 15, verse 16, verse 17 covenant again and again and again God had promised a covenant before the flood actually we may have missed that it was in chapter 6 verse 18 but now he makes good on his word a covenant's a binding agreement between two parties it establishes the terms of their relationship it contains promises that must be kept and in the Bible, these covenants often carry a sign, something to show, to, to sort of remind the parties of what has been agreed. So the most obvious, the best human example we have of a, of a covenant is marriage. So we make public promises of conduct towards one another. And we give each other a sign, a, a ring, uh, that we might remember to keep our words. So I can look at this ring and I can remember the promises that I made to Joe. And I can remember the promises that she made to me. Now this covenant's different to marriage because, or mainly because, it's not made between two equal parties. The promise here is made by one party, 
a greatly superior one, towards the other inferior one. God sets the terms. There's no negotiation. Humanity just has to listen. The specific promise of this covenant is best summed up by verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That's the covenant that God makes here. There are three things I think that we can pay attention to as we see this covenant. It's breadth, it's length, and it's generosity. First of all, it's breadth. Now look at who's included. Verse 9, it's Noah and his offspring, which in time is going to include, of course, all human beings on the earth. It's also every creature. Verse 10, the animals are included too. This is breadth. It's length. It extends into the future. It is never again. And for all future generations. And verse 16, it is an everlasting covenant. It will endure, as the former promise said in in chapter 8, verse 22, it will endure while the earth remains. That is, God will patiently withhold his judgment and keep the world going until the Lord brings all, the, all things to a close at the return of Jesus. It's breadth in its length, but then the most striking thing of all is its generosity. The covenant is unconditional and undeserved. God freely promises to withhold another flood of judgment from sinful humanity. Not because his love for them is reciprocated, not because they'll keep his law, they won't. No, he makes it only because of his grace. Notice too what it is that ensures that God will keep his promise. It's the rainbow, the sign that he puts in the sky as a reminder to him of what he's promised. This is a covenant of generosity. It's a covenant of grace made by a God of grace. So once again in Genesis, we've seen God act in generous grace towards humanity. He has judged, but he's preserved too. And he's blessed. He's giving good things to those who don't deserve it. What we're being taught here once again is that Our very lives are dependent on the grace of God to not treat us as we deserve. I think sometimes we can just really take this for granted. We assume that we'll wake up tomorrow and the world will be the same. We can so easily forget what our hearts are really like and that if God treated us as we deserved, well, we would have been wiped off the map long ago. The Apostle Peter writes that sometimes because of God's grace to us in sustaining the world in this way, well, we often assume that his patience with us means that he won't ever judge in the future. This cannot be, he says. God's gracious, patient withholding of judgment that's promised here in Genesis, it doesn't mean that there's no judgment at all in the end. No, God is just. He will judge 
sin. He'll deal with sinful humanity, not by flood, but by fire, which really will be the end of all things. Even so, he says, there's mercy for those who will repent now. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. God is being patient with us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This covenant of grace is to hold back judgment until the final day so that we might repent and turn to him in faith before it's too late. So we can't dare to presume. Finally, our third and final section. Let's return to chapter 9, verse 18 to 29. Now Noah, in this chapter, he plays much like my golf game. Um, Having hit a drive down the fairway with his first shot, he then shanks it out of bounds with his second. He did exactly the right thing with the sacrifice, but what happens in the next episode is ugly. If we had any lingering thought that maybe humanity was reformed, well, these final verses have immediate evidence that the old problem of sin remains. And it's shocking. Noah, the man of faith... The best of humanity, he makes a terrible mess of things. Let's read verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now, if you're feeling really generous, uh, it's possible that Noah didn't know that fermented grapes made you drunk. Maybe he'd never come across that before. But even so, well, of course, there's still the possibility of self-control once he'd felt the alcohol taking some effect. Instead, he keeps drinking until he becomes so wasted that he ends up naked, paralytic in his tent. This is Noah. This is the most righteous of us all. What happens next, though, with Ham and his son is the focus of the sinful behaviour in uh, this incident, verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. Again, there's some ambiguity in the account. The the text says that Ham saw his father's nakedness and then told his brothers outside. Now, that could be all all that happened, that he he mocked and ridiculed Noah. And that would have been something deeply shameful in ancient cultures. Instead, what he should have done is what his brothers did, which was to honour their father by covering up his folly, taking care not to look on him themselves. But it could also be that, that Ham did something more than that to Noah. See, the phrasing to see, to see someone's nakedness in the Bible it can be a delicate way of putting something altogether more sinister. The language of verse 24 and 25 certainly makes it seem that whatever happened, it was deeply grievous, given the consequence that falls on him. Verse 24 
When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Ham's offspring, Canaan, Ham's son, his family line is cursed to become an enemy of God's people. Again, whatever happened here, the point is that humanity hasn't changed at heart. Just after Adam's creation, we had Adam's sin and then his son Cain murdering Abel straight away. Now, after this new beginning with Noah, the almost new Adam, we get the grievous sins of him and his son straight away. The author's teaching us something that God was not kidding when he diagnosed the human heart as evil. The old, old problem's not gone away, and it's still here to this day. The wickedness of humanity richly deserves the judgment of a holy God. Now that might leave us feeling pretty hopeless. Is there any hope? Is there any hope for us at all? Well, we've had some hope already, remember. We learned earlier that sin might be atoned for by sacrifice, that God's wrath might be appeased. We learned also that God's a gracious God, that he makes grace-based covenants with people. He's a God who's patient with undeserving sinners, who wants all people to come to repentance before the final judgment. And then here, just at the end of our verses, just another glimmer of hope. Familiar theme of Genesis, the promise of an evil-crushing offspring to come from the line of faith. Verse 26, there was another thing that Noah said to his sons. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servants. Here's our hope. One of Noah's sons, at least, trusts in the Lord. The Lord is the God of Shem. God has once again, he's preserved some who trust in his name. And it's from this line, as we'll see, that will come Abraham. And then from Abraham's line, eventually, will come the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just a glimmer of hope, but this is where the hope for humanity comes from. From the offspring. Noah can't save us, but one of his offspring will. The Lord Jesus. In Jesus we find someone who is truly righteous, who never sins unlike Noah, who is a truly new and perfect Adam. And we'll find in Jesus the maker of a new covenant in his blood, in which we will find immeasurable grace, saving grace, and we'll gain cleaned up hearts, and eventually a new creation that's free from sin. And all that because in Jesus we have the one who makes the ultimate atoning sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself on the cross, to pay for our sins in our place. In that sacrifice, the wrath of God is turned away 
from all those who trust in him once and for all. Spend a lot of time in Genesis in the darkness, looking at the darkness of the world, seeing what we're really like and what we deserve. And it's important that we see that. See, the Bible would teach us that we're so evil, so turned away from God, that we think we're not evil. That we think it's not that dark in our world and not that dark in our hearts and that maybe we're the solution to the problems of this world. Maybe we can fix things ourselves. We need the Bible to reveal to us just how evil we are. The question that it keeps asking us is, why would God deal with any of us? Why would he save any of us? We need to see the darkness so that we start looking for the shafts of light. And in Genesis, we're going to see them on the far horizon. They're a long way off in Genesis, but they reveal to us the only hope that humanity has. The grace of God and the offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. The degree to which we see the darkness in our world and the darkness in ourselves is the degree to which we will long and look for a saviour. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have looked once more at a, a passage that reveals to us our sinfulness, our wickedness, our evil, Lord, we pray that you would help us to grasp the reality of what we are like apart from you. And we pray, therefore, Lord God, that you would cause our hearts to look to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. We thank you that in him we have your grace. And that in him your wrath against our sin is turned away, atoned for, so that we can be made new and so that we can long and look for a new creation where all this stuff has gone away. We praise you in his name. Amen.